Well, turn with me to Ezra 7, verse 11. And we're going to look all the way to the end of chapter 8 this evening. While you're finding Ezra 7, let me tell you about one of my heroes of the faith. His nickname is simply the doctor. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. The doctor was born in Wales in 1899. He was the son of a humble grocery store owner. He was exceptionally bright, and at the age of 18, he entered medical school. By the time he was 23, he had obtained five separate medical licensures, or three separate medical licensures, rather. He received his MD degree, and he led the way in research on the rare heart infection as well. At the prestigious Barts Hospital in London, he became assistant to Sir Thomas Horder, one of the foremost physicians of the era, as well as working in Sir Horder's private upper crust clinic on Harley Street, the most famous medical community in in London. The doctor was incredibly gifted at the science of diagnosis, of studying every possible variable in a patient and coming to logical conclusions and rendering effective treatment. He was so gifted that at the age of 27, he was offered the position of assistant professor in medicine at Bart's Hospital, and he was offered a salary of 3,500 pounds, today's equivalent of about $300,000. This son of a humble Welch grocer had decades of brilliant medical practice in front of him, and he walked away from it. He didn't take the job. Why did he not take the job? Well, after his conversion to Christ, he began to sense a, a gnawing in his soul that the saving of the bodies of people was not his calling. He yearned to see the souls of people saved. He had seen during his time in medicine the the moral and spiritual vacuum which existed not only among the poorer patients at London's East End, but also with the rich patients who attended the prestigious Harley Street clinics. Well, his decision to leave medicine for the gospel ministry caught the attention of the London Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church of Wales, and they put him up as a candidate for gospel ministry. And so in January of 1927, he married Bethan Phillips. Three weeks later, he began pastoring a tiny church in Wales in the town of Abervan, and he was being paid 220 pounds a year, $18,000 a year, today's money, $1,500 a month in today's money, He would have received $25,000 a month had he taken the position at Bart's Hospital. And praise the Lord that the doctor followed God's call. Early in his ministry, some were skeptical of the fact that the doctor had no theological training. But in his unique case, God used his medical training and his mastery of the art and science of diagnosis to show the doctor the same level of detail in studying the Bible He developed into a theologian extraordinaire, and he did something basically unheard of in this era that he would preach for an hour, and he would take sometimes three or four messages just to cover one verse. Nobody did this, particularly in Great Britain. He ministered in Aberfan for a decade before finally returning to London in 1939, He was appointed associate pastor of Westminster Chapel, which was at the time pastored by the eminent G. Campbell Morgan. 
The day before Lloyd-Jones was installed as the assistant pastor, World War II broke out in Europe. In 1943, the doctor became the preaching pastor of Westminster Chapel, and he was known to preach through the German air raids during the sermons until the end of the war. He increased his preaching load. He preached for an hour on Sunday morning. He preached for an hour on Sunday evening. And he preached for an hour on Friday evenings. Thousands of people packed Westminster Chapel to learn the word of God under his shepherding. His most famous act of preaching was his series in Romans. He held this series on Friday nights beginning in October of 1955 And he would preach each Friday evening from the beginning of October all the way to the end of May each year. Then he would resume again in October. He preached through Romans from October 1955 to March of 1968. 372 messages. And he didn't even make it all the way through. He made it to Romans 14, 17, but had to stop due to the failing health at that point. He believed in the preached word of God with all of his heart. And he believed in the Holy Spirit's unction and help during the preached word. His sermons mostly started the same way. If you listen to Lloyd-Jones, and you can still listen to him um, today, there's, a, there's an app, MLJ Trust, where you can listen to his sermons. His, ser- his sermons always start the same. A lot of matter-of-fact introductory thoughts. And incidentally, he has the worst speaking voice in the history of Christendom. It's just this little nasal, we're turning to the Gospel of Matthew this evening. And it sounds like a cartoon. (laughs) But he opens his sermon with lots of introduction, lots of thoughts to get you thinking, explaining why the next five words he's going to preach on are so important He would proceed to make countless detailed observations of the text, not missing a single detail. Here's why this verb is here. That's a whole message. Here's why the next preposition is here. That's a whole message. But as the sermon neared the close, he kicked his preaching into high gear, appealing and insisting and exhorting and calling upon his people to obey. I put it this way, his sermon started off like driving the Volkswagen and ends up with him in a fighter jet going Mach 3. And he believed that was the Holy Spirit giving power to the preached word. And thousands of people came to faith in Christ under his ministry. They were discipled under the steadied and studied hand of a true master of Bible exposition. The doctor always said that God uniquely prepared him, that all his training in medicine was for one purpose, and that was to show him how to rightly divide the word of God and show him that saving the person's body pales in comparison to saving his soul. And all throughout the history of God's people, God has faithfully supplied such gifted shepherds each prepared individually by God. And it's interesting that all through church history, you can almost uh, calendar and point to one or two great men who really rose above the rest in every generation. God has faithfully done this. Last week, we looked at the key human character in Ezra Nehemiah, Ezra himself, a shepherd uniquely called by God to spiritually lead the Jews who had already left Babylon. And God is sending Ezra to the Jews now uh, who are in and around Jerusalem. This is 60 years, almost 60 years after the completion of the temple. So a lot has happened. And so we pick up the story tonight, which gives us much more detail about Ezra, the man of God, and about all of his preparations. 
Now, as you know, as we've been walking through Ezra and Nehemiah, seeing the faithfulness of God and proofs of that faithfulness each week, last week we saw the fact that God provides set-apart shepherds. Tonight we'd look, like to look at the fact that God equips set-apart shepherds, that he's the one who equips the shepherds. And I would point out that the Bible doesn't merely make a passing mention of the shepherds of God's people. It's not just a passing thought. The human shepherds that God gives, these were the means by which we got our Bible as the Holy Spirit superintended certain men to give us the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. For us in the church age, the New Testament is absolutely crystal clear on the the qualifications and the roles of shepherds for God's people. There's no lack of clarity whatsoever. In fact, here in Ezra and Nehemiah, out of the 23 total chapters of Ezra and Nehemiah, two of them, Ezra 7 and 8, almost 10% of the whole book, highlight Ezra and his role as the shepherd of God's people in this time. And so in various ways and really in unique fashion for every preacher of the gospel, God graciously equips them. Why is this? Because shepherds are not born, they're made. And so God makes them. And what we'll see tonight really is a behind-the-scenes look at, a, at the making of a shepherd's character. A behind-the-scenes look, and we're going to do this in four pairs or four sets of qualities that Ezra shows to be a well-rounded shepherd in every way. Four sets of qualities. Now, he already had the necessary background. Ezra 7, verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We looked at that in detail last time. By the way, if you're wondering what does this have to do with me, the four sets of qualities of the making of a shepherd's character, what you're going to find, and I'll, I'll give this to you again at the end, this is a ready-made prayer list for the members of, of a church, how to pray for your shepherds. These can be the requests that you bring to the Lord on behalf of those who shepherd you. We need your prayers. We are in a spiritual battle. Every generation is. And so prayer is how we fight that battle. And my hope is that tonight we'll assist you in those prayers. So four sets of qualities in the making of a well-rounded shepherd. The first set of qualities we'll call courage and praise. Courage and praise. The author inserts into the biblical text the decree by King Artaxerxes on Ezra's behalf. Chapter 7, verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes for Israel. This decree was to be taken with him so that the Persian officials in the area in and around Jerusalem, they would be cooperative. They would, they would help with Ezra's effort. Verse 11 reminds us that Ezra is a priest. We saw that last time in the ads here that he's also a scribe, a student, and a teacher of the Word of God. One of the ways he learned the Word of God, especially the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, which was his specialty, was simply writing it over and over again. This connects us to the previous verse that we just referenced in chapter 7, verse 10, which highlighted Ezra's priorities of studying the scriptures and obeying the scriptures and teaching the scriptures. Chapter 7, verse 12, Artaxerxes, and this is the decree, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. Artaxerxes calls himself the king of kings, meaning he's the king over the whole of the Persian Empire. But he did acknowledge here that the Israelites regarded Yahweh as king over the heavens and the earth. 
And now in this decree, Artaxerxes is going to give four authorizations to Ezra, permission to do four things. And these are so amazing. They're so profound. They're so over-the-top generous and so obviously from the Lord above that the chapter ends with this burst of doxological praise by Ezra to God for what he's done through King Artaxerxes. So four authorizations, and we'll just name them. The first one we'll call relocation. Relocation is authorized. Verse 13, and now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. Artaxerxes reaffirms Cyrus's decree from almost 80 years earlier in Ezra 1.3 that any Jews who wanted to return were permitted to do so. Now, just remember from Artaxerxes' uh, viewpoint For him, this is merely giving people in his empire permission to move from one location in his empire to another location in his empire. But for the Jews, this meant going home. This meant another opportunity to go home. And so he authorizes relocation. The second authorization we would call investigation. Investigation. Verse 14, for you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Ezra was to investigate how the law was being kept by the Jews now 60 years or so after the temple had been rebuilt. How were the Jews conforming to the commanded set-apart life of Israel? And we'll see here in a moment that in verses 25 and 26, Ezra is also authorized to set up a judicial system to judge Israel under the law of Moses, that judgment and justice was on its way. Now, this wasn't some sort of edict of perfectionism, but what we do see here is an insistence that God's people would obey God's law, including making sacrifices for sin, including keeping the the calendar year of worship. And so Ezra, it says at the end of uh, verse 14, the law of God, which is in your hand, Ezra will be arriving with a copy of God's law, the Bible in his hand to test the obedience of God's people against the word of God. And by the way, that encapsulates shepherding in one verse. Somebody arrives with the word of God and tests the people of God against the word of God. That's shepherding. And that would take tremendous courage. There's a third authorization. We'll call this one operation. Operation. In verses 15 through 24, Artaxerxes would authorize the full operation of the temple. Now, in these verses, the king authorizes Ezra to raise funds for the operation of the temple before he left Babylon. I think it's important for us to remember, from our vantage point, just a chapter earlier, in chapter 6, the temple is completed, the people began temple worship once again, but that's 60 years removed now. Apparently, the fullness of the worship here, maybe it got started, but it wasn't maintained Why was it not maintained? Well, primarily because they didn't have teachers of the word. They didn't have enough shepherds. If we skipped ahead to Nehemiah 8, which we don't have time to do, but if you did, Nehemiah 8 is going to fix that and demonstrate that you must have the preached word of God to maintain the worship of God. But for now, the goal that the king wanted was to be certain that the sacrificial system was, in fact, operating, that the worship year was happening. And so Ezra, in verses 15 through 24, he was to buy animals and grain and the wine required for the offerings to be given at the altar of the temple. Any of the money left over was to be used at Ezra's discretion, verse 18. 
Other money in the future that was needed could be taken from the treasury operated by the Persian officials there in Judea, verses 20 through 23. And in fact, the normal taxes levied on the Jews that they had to send back to the central treasury, they were given permission now to skim off the top first. In fact, verse 22 gives the amounts that could be kept back each year for the operation of the temple. Verse 22, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. And as part of the funding effort, the king gave a tax exemption to all temple workers. Verse 24, We also know the fire that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. They were The king was making certain that none of the temple workers had to pay those taxes. They were to be exempt. They were not to have to worry about financial and material provision but be freed to minister without worry. But why would Artaxerxes, a, a pagan king, why would he be so concerned that the people of God obey the law of God and even make certain that they're fully provided for by the, by the treasury and that the ministers of God's people have no financial worries whatsoever? What was, his, what was his investment? Why was he concerned? Look at verse 23 of chapter 7. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven. Here it is. Lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Artaxerxes wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh that we know of. And this was likely in line with the Persian Empire policy of trying not to offend any nation's gods. But the net effect was that God was supplying Israel now with Ezra, with a godly shepherd and provisions for the maintaining of temple worship through this fear that Artaxerxes had. This is how it went. Basically, it was, I'm going to make sure that every god in my whole empire is happy. And for him, Yahweh was just one of those. But can you imagine this? Can you imagine if the president of the United States and if all the governors of all the states not as Christians necessarily, but as those who generally believe in God. Can you imagine that if they believed in God's wrath coming upon a nation that disobeys God? Can you imagine what it would be like if they made it their role and their job to smooth the way for the church of Jesus Christ to make sure we're, we're open and free to do anything? That's not going to happen. And yes, we have so-called religious freedom, even though oppression for Christians is rising year by year. But could I say this, and it might be a little bit different for you to hear this, but religious freedom is way overrated. And I'll tell you why. Religious freedom at any level is only a compromising concession to all false religions so that the one true faith in Jesus Christ will also operate. But total religious freedom has never been God's will. Did you know that? It never has been. God's will is for humanity to worship him alone. Through Jesus Christ alone, by means of the unadulterated gospel of Christ alone. And if you don't believe me, think about this. Fast forwarding to the future in the coming millennial kingdom when Christ is reigning on earth. Do you think that Jesus, with, upon whom the government is on his shoulders, Isaiah 9, do you think he's going to legislate religious freedom? Absolutely not. In fact, the nations who refuse to worship him will come under his judgment. Zechariah 14 makes this very clear. 
And this is an historical fact. Historically, the, the church spiritually eventually flounders under religious freedom and flourishes under oppression. Why is that? Because under oppression, fakes quit faking it when asked to pay any price for their faith, and so the church is purified. See also the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2. They suffered and they were purified. And so Artaxerxes has authorized Ezra for relocation, investigation, and operation of the temple. The final authorization he gives we'll call regulation. Regulation. Ezra was given authority to enforce the law of God for the first time really since the, the new nation had began, begun forming. Chapter 7, verse 26. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Four levels of enforcement, the death penalty, banishment, fines, imprisonment. And this incredible decree is what leads us to the set of qualities that we're considering courage and praise. Ezra's bowled over by God's providential goodness. This is an amazing turn of events. And he breaks out into a doxology, an expression of giving glory to God. Now, before we read it, we should note that in chapter 7, verse 27, beginning in that verse, going all the way through to the end of chapter 9, we have a unique and special feature that these are the words written by Ezra himself. This is a first-person account. It's like reading his diary. And so that's a special feature here. But here we see his doxology, his expression of praise. Verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra recognized the total sovereignty of God that was behind everything that had happened behind all these wonderful authorizations in the decree of Artaxerxes, and we're reminded once again, as we said early on in this series of Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And Ezra recognizes this. A pagan king has basically said, here's all the money you ever need. You need to go and you need to enforce the law of God and make your nation obedient to the Lord once again. In fact, Ezra said that God put it into the heart of Artaxerxes to beautify the house of the Lord. This wasn't a remodeling project. The temple was complete. What is it that beautifies the house of God? It is the full operation of the worship of God. That's what beautifies the house of God. This room that we're in is beautiful. It's well done, but that's not what makes it beautiful. What makes it beautiful are the people gathered here that give God honor and glory. Look at the courage and praise of Ezra. Because it's a progression. And this progression should characterize every shepherd. Near the end of verse 28, we see the first part of the progression. The hand of the Lord my God was on me. In other words, Ezra saw tangible, visible evidence that God was working. What was the tangible, visible evidence? Well, he was holding it. It was this decree from Artaxerxes. The second part of the progression, I took courage. 
God never asks the church's shepherds to have blind faith in order to lead God's people. Every shepherd is given evidence of the providential working of God in his life and in his ministry. When I as a shepherd, when your elders as, as shepherds, when, when we tell you things that we believe that the Lord would help us to do this and this, this isn't our first rodeo in seeing the faithfulness of God. So the hand of God comes first and then there's courage. The third part of the progression, the hand of God, courage, now comes praise. And, and I hope you're seeing that there's this upward trajectory that should characterize the, the life of a shepherd. Seeing God work, being courageous in the ministry, and giving God honor and glory. I can easily tell you what the two words are that I say most on Sunday evenings. When I, come, when I think about and reflect on the day, the two words I say over and over again are just thank you, thank you, thank you to the Lord. This is the pattern that characterized our friend, the Apostle Paul. He wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Paul saw God working and it engendered courage and praise in Paul as a shepherd. Courage and praise. There's a second set of qualities in the making of a shepherd. We'll call these leadership and initiative. Leadership and initiative. Now, chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, gives a list of those who left Babylon with Ezra. This is the second return, by the way. And let me just give you three notes of interest. I won't read the whole text of 1 through 14. It's just a list of men. Three notes of interest. First of all, verse 2 lists two priestly families without giving any totals, uh, total numbers in the family. So we have priestly families returning once again. A second note is that one family is from the house of David. What does this tell us? It's just one little note at the end of verse 2. Of the sons of David, Hattush. What does that tell us? It means that God is still working through the family of David. That the Davidic promise is still alive. But the main note I want you to see here is that if you did a comparison of all the names listed in verses 3 through 14 with the, the list 80 years earlier in Ezra uh, chapter 2 of the original returnees in 537, 536, 80 years apart, the names are almost all the same. Well, what does that mean? How are they the same? What it means here is that the list here in chapter 8 is not a list of individuals. This is a list of family names. This is a list of those returning to Jerusalem and Judah, and they're headed to family who already live there. And so any of these names here, uh, the one exception would be Joab in verse 9, but these names are family names. That this is not just more people going back to Judah and Jerusalem. This is, this is family being reunited. They're being reunified with their relatives. So if we did the math from verse 1 through verse 14, the total number of non-temple workers that returned with, with Ezra would be 1,511, not including the priests and the sons of David. If you include those, it would be around 1,600 men with their wives and children. So several thousand people returning back. And so Ezra leads this caravan to begin what we saw last time would be a four-month trek on the 900-mile trip from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's a very quick pace for a, a caravan of that size. And, and by the way, they, they delayed for 12 days, as we'll see here in a moment. So they went even faster than the math we did last week. 
Chapter 8, verse 15, the journey begins. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there were none of the sons of Levi. So the caravan left Babylon on the first day of the first month, Babylon uh, reckoning, chapter 7, verse 9 tells us that. So it's like for us leaving on New Year's Day. That's a great time to begin a new life, isn't it? This was a nine-day journey to the river that runs to Ahava. We will see in verse 31 that they finally left on the 12th day. Here in verse 15, it says they camped for three days. That makes it a, a nine-day journey just to get started. They, they go to the river. It may have been actually a man-made canal, but they go to this river to kind of get their bearings and get ready to make their trek. But when they get there, Ezra now takes attendance. And he realizes that he doesn't have any Levites with him. This is important because part of the whole point of this second return was for Ezra to reestablish the full system of temple worship. So not having Levites, the God-ordained temple workers, this is a major problem. So Ezra sent for some. God brought to him 38 Levites and 220 temple servants to assist the priests. We see this in verses uh, 18 through 20. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 18. Verse 18, And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18. And then it goes on to list others, uh, 20. And then 220 temple servants. 258 total. Ezra shows incredible leadership. He gathers followers that are to assist him in the work of the ministry. He mobilizes to get the right men around him. In this case, a large number of temple workers. And I want you to get this note here. I want you to hear this. 38 Levites, 220 temple workers, and Ezra was not asking, could you serve for a week or could you serve for one month at your convenience? No. He called them as servants. In the New Testament, we would say deacons to leave their lifelong homes. By this time, all of them were born in Babylon. It's the only home they'd ever known. To leave their homes, their businesses, the only lives they had ever known, and to follow Ezra to Jerusalem to serve God, not doing particularly glorious tasks, but the mundane tasks of serving the Lord. The shepherd is to mobilize God's people for God's work and to never apologize for this. Ezra convinced these men that they were serving God and therefore they're willing to make a tremendous sacrifice to do so. Uh, let me give you an example I think we could relate to. This is the same as the elders at Grace Bible Church saying, we need a deacon over washing all the windows. We need a guy that that's all he's going to do. So we call up a really good window washer in beautiful Colorado Springs, about a thousand miles away from here. And we say, we would like for you to uproot your family. We would like for you to leave the Rocky Mountains and come to Bakersfield. And come wash windows. And that's akin to this man saying, absolutely, I'll leave everything I've ever known and go from the most beautiful city on earth, Babylon, to the not most beautiful city on earth, Jerusalem. Ezra leads 258 more men besides those 1,600 already coming with him to do just that. Now, it's very likely that these men already knew of Ezra. They knew his reputation as a man of God. They had been taught already how to follow the Lord. The leadership of the church's shepherds is meant to 
mobilize God's people, to disciple them and mobilize them. That's the entire point of Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, to equip the saints for what? For the work of the ministry. And this leadership goes hand in hand. It's hand in glove with initiative. There's no record of Ezra having a big meeting and saying, oh, no, what do we do? Let's figure this out. Let's let's have a big powwow and let's just kind of uh, figure it out over a long time. Let's take six months and, 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 and have a lot of meetings. No, he didn't do that. Ezra just took the initiative. He just did what needed to be done. He didn't take a poll. He didn't see if it was okay with everyone. He didn't take a, have, a, have a focus group. He didn't do any of that. And what was Ezra's strategy to cast a vision of service to 258 men to leave their homes and their livelihoods permanently? Look at the strategy, verse 16 of chapter 8. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, El Nathan, Jerob, El Nathan, that's another El Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jorib and a third El Nathan, who were men of insight. Three El Nathans. That's one of the reasons we know this text is accurate, because it just gave the names. As, as they were. By the way, El Nathan means gift of God. I think that's a great uh, third of the men to send that means gift of God. He taught these men what to say. Verse 17, sending them to Edo, the leading man at the place of Casiphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. He taught them what to say, and then he sent them out. This would have been a formidable and a convincing appeal. He sends nine leading men. In other words, these are men people knew. They were natural leaders. They were the the type of people that others just follow. And two men of insight, wise men, men who know the word of God, all of whom were also leaving everything they'd ever known to follow Ezra in Jerusalem. This is very convincing, Ezra doesn't go himself. He sends 11 men to convince others to say, come with us. That's leadership. That's initiative. Leading a few who are then equipped to lead many more. We could just do the math here. Ezra taught 11 men what to say. They brought back 258. In other words, they reproduced themselves about 23 times over. That is shepherding. That's leadership and initiative. The third set of qualities in the making of a shepherd. We'll call this one loyalty and faith. Loyalty and faith. Before the caravan left for Jerusalem, Ezra, the, the shepherd who is ever mindful of dependence on the Lord, he led the entire caravan in a time of fasting and prayer. Tells us what kind of leader he was that he could speak to 3,000 people and say, don't eat for three days, we're going to pray, and they would do it. Ezra had chosen not to ask King Artaxerxes for security, for protection on the journey. Why is that? Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was, here's the reason, for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So he didn't ask. Why? Because he boldly told the king, God is with us. 
And so Ezra didn't want to turn around and say, God is with us, but could you send a small army with us just in case that part doesn't work out? He didn't want to do that. Instead, he asked everyone with him to fast and to pray. We would assume for three days there at the camp to pray for a safe journey. Ezra determined to trust the Lord instead of in the armies of the king. And Ezra led God's people to humble themselves before the Lord to be in the very safest place they could ever be, and that is in the good hand of God. That's the only safe place they could be. And this would be a treacherous trip. It would be a dangerous journey. A huge caravan with children and with wealth was easy picking for an organized group of bandits on the road. It was almost certain. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't that there might be trouble. It's that there will be trouble. That was just the case in the ancient Near East. And Ezra was concerned for God's honor that surely if Yahweh was such a great and mighty God, he would protect his servants along this 900-mile trip. And God heard the prayers of Ezra and his people Verse 23, so we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And Ezra gives proof that God heard, and it comes after the end of the journey. Skip down to verse 31. Verse 31, then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. I want you to notice at the end of verse 31, from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes, by the way, this is not a theoretical thing that means that they didn't see any enemies. It means that they were there, they saw them, and they were not touched. They were kept safe. And Ezra was loyal to the Lord. He was concerned that God's name be lifted up before the king, and so he demonstrated his, his loyalty to the name of God. And, and listen very carefully, that was his concern. It's a major mistake to think that Ezra's top concern was safety and security. Yes, he was concerned about safety and security, but if that was his top concern, when Artaxerxes said, hey, let me send an army with you, Ezra would have said, absolutely, let's take that precaution. But he didn't. He had boasted He had said, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And the implication here is that that's what Ezra spontaneously answered when Artaxerxes said, let me send an army with you. And Ezra said, no thanks, and then turned around and said, what have I done? But he didn't want to go back. And rightly so, his top concern was not safety and security. His top concern was the honor of God. The reputation of God, because Ezra had already boasted that God would protect them. In the coming years, I fully expect that our government will end the tax-exempt status of churches. Even now, the government expects us to bow and scrape and be really thankful for the tax-exempt status of churches, as if they're doing the Church of Jesus Christ a favor. They don't know they're simply being used by God to be a help. When they end the tax-exempt status of churches, there will be several ramifications. A couple of them will be, first of all, you won't get a tax deduction when you give to the church. And second, some of the exceptions made for ministers of the gospel by the IRS will evaporate. So what do we do? Do we alter course? Do we bow? Do we scrape? I believe with all of my heart that when this happens, it will be, like COVID was in the past couple of years, a purifying to the church. 
that once the tax deduction benefit is removed, the true church will emerge based on how they respond to that new development, that true loyalties will be exposed. That's what always happens under any kind of oppression. Instead, we're to not only be loyal to the Lord, we're to be like Ezra and to have faith. Ezra, thankfully, wasn't a pessimist who always sees the meadow muffins in the meadow. He wasn't the pessimist who... Uh, For him, every sunshine has a cloudy lining. He wasn't the type of leader that the first words out of his mouth whenever there's a crisis is always, oh, no, and worrying. No, he went to prayer and he went by faith. It was unthinkable to take a caravan of several thousand on an unprotected trip in the ancient Near East. You just didn't do that. You always took an army with you. Now, what's the connection between loyalty and faith? Why do we have those two together? Listen carefully. It is lack of faith that produces lack of loyalty to the Lord. When you have no faith, when your faith wavers, then your loyalty wavers as well because you no longer trust that God will work even if you obey him. Lack of faith produces lack of loyalty. And for the shepherds of God's people, they are called to loyalty to the Lord first and foremost before any other loyalty. And when any other entity wants to compete for loyalty, then you say no and you fall on the mercy of God instead. I told you earlier about the great doctor, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, preaching even during air raids in London during World War II. But there, was, there were laws in London during World War II. The, the citizens of London were strictly told to shelter in air raid shelters in their own homes or underground in the tube stations, but they were not to stay congregated in a large building in the center of London. It was against the law. But when the air raid sirens would go off during one of Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons, the people of Westminster Chapel just continued listening to the preached word and they didn't move. Why? Because they had faith And thus they were loyal. And I think if you asked any of the members there, and even asked Lloyd-Jones himself, but weren't you afraid that the bombs might hit Westminster Chapel? I think their answer would be, we've been sitting under the preaching of the word that teaches us about the sovereignty of God. If the bomb hits here, we all go home together. How glorious is that? Loyalty and faith. Never trust a shepherd who can't trust the Lord. Here's a fourth set of qualities in the making of a shepherd. Organization and protection. Organization and protection. In verses 24 through 30 and then 33 and 34, Ezra shows concern for the wealth they were carrying with them. Verse 24, Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 100 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. What happened when they arrived four months later? 
Verse 33, on the fourth day within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with him were the Levites, Jozebad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. The implication being that they arrived with every penny that they started with. The mission was accomplished. Ezra had made a plan. It was well thought out. It was well executed. And and his plan right there, by the way, is right up there with any sophisticated money handling plan that any organization, including the church, ought to have. Let me just show you a little note here. Back in verse 24, then I set apart 12 of the leading priests. And your Bible probably has a colon right there, which implies that those 12 leading priests are Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen. That's not actually the case. Sherebiah and Hashabiah are listed back in verses 18 and 19, not as priests, but simply as Levites who aren't priests. So if your English translation has a colon in verse 24 after the word priests, that would make it appear that the priests are Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and the, and the ten others. It should not be there. Now, why make such a distinction? Because what actually was the case with there were, there were 12 priests and 12 Levites, 24 total. And the most likely scenario is that Ezra divided them into 12 pairs of men, one priest, one Levite, to guard one twelfth each of the wealth being brought back. That is a high-level money-handling policy. This is high-level organization. This is encouragement for all of you in the church who are involved in the nitty-gritty details of the gospel ministry and that God's shepherds are to lead the way with organization. But what was the purpose of the organization? It was protection. It was to have the integrity that every penny given to them would arrive safely in Jerusalem. What was being protected from? Well, there's two levels of protection. First of all, it was protection from the outside to protect any outsiders from getting the wealth, but God had really taken care of that. But these pairs of men were charged with guarding this wealth from anyone. So not only protection from the outside, probably more importantly, protection from the inside. They had accountability that there were two men, a priest and a regular old Levite, to hold one another accountable that no one could get some friends to bury a few things on the way to come back a year later and retrieve some, some buried treasure. That They couldn't do that. We have a, a multi-page policy even in our own church to provide that same protection. One of those protections is that if two or three people are counting money, they can't all be related. That they can't have any sort of temptation to do anything untoward. And we say, well, that would never happen. It happens all the time. Happens all the time. I knew of one elder, not in our church, but an elder in another church that wrote himself a check for $25,000 and said, what are you going to do about it? It happens. And so this organization is for protection. It is for integrity. The church of Jesus Christ is not to be a chaotic, disorganized muddle. It's to be structured. It's to be useful. It's to be organized to the glory of God. And Paul even instructs the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14.40 that all things should be done decently and in order. Every one of our elders do some mundane administrative things. All of our deacons do mundane administrative things. Thank them sometime and thank them for that. It's, it's ordained by God to be organized and protective. 
Well, the last two verses of Ezra 8 shows the initial success of Ezra's mission when they arrive at that time. Verse 35, at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps, those were local Persian governors, and to the governors of the province beyond the river, that's Judea, and they aided the people and the house of God. What is that saying? It's saying that the decree made by Artaxerxes was carried out. It happened. This is the making of a shepherd. Men who possess courage and praise, leadership and initiative, loyalty and faith, organization and protection. Now, in these messages in Ezra and Nehemiah, we want to always apply this forward. And so what does this story remind us in terms of growing, remind us of in terms of growing in our own Christ-likeness? How, how do we apply this as those looking to be Christ-like? You remember the Levites and the temple servants that Ezra persuaded to leave everything they'd ever known and to make that 900-mile no-turning-back trek to Jerusalem in chapter 8? The text doesn't tell us the internal motivations of those 258 men who were added on to the previous ones, but the strong implication is that the nine leading men and the two men of insight, chapter 8, verse 16, were very convincing. But those 258 men, we do know this, they didn't choose to leave for Jerusalem because it was personally fulfilling or because it was without challenges. The first thing that happened on this trip was a three-day time of praying and fasting to not be robbed and slaughtered on the road. This wasn't a glorious journey. This was a hard journey. Ezra, the master leader and man of initiative, shepherded this large bunch into a group effort for the sake of the worship of God. And, And for us, in the very same way, we can never view the church as a few doing all the work for an onlooking audience. That's never how we're to be but the church filled with those during, doing the work of the ministry. Yes, when it's challenging. Yes, when it's risky. Yes, when it's difficult. And yes, maybe even when it hurts. Ezra convinced these returnees of a higher motivation, a bigger calling, that God inhabits the praise of his people and that the worship year needed to be restarted and maintained. And for these several thousand people, even for 258 men who spontaneously dropped their entire lives, The worship of God was worthy of any risk or suffering they might endure. By the way, in the timeline, how long did those 258 think about it? They didn't. They packed their stuff and left same day. Christ-likeness. We grow in Christ-likeness when we serve sacrificially. We always want to get to the road to the cross of Christ. And this passage is brilliantly lit with some reminders of that road. Clear reminders of the words of Jesus in the Great Commission. Jesus said that the Christian is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He said very plainly in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A true believer in Christ, one who is regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, you have a natural yearning to obey, don't you? You have a natural yearning to be shepherded. And just as Ezra brought his copy of the law of God with him to Jerusalem by which to teach and to test God's people, what a breath of fresh air it is when shepherds come to a church with a Bible in hand and say, let's obey God. That's a breath of fresh air. 
I have the opportunity sometimes to work with pastors just before they go to a new church, and I always want to find out what the, the atmosphere in the church they're going to, the pastor is, and very often it is one of degradation, that if perhaps they've been without a pastor for two, three, or four years, and so the church has degraded in terms of shepherding. And what we always talk about is the fact that you have to prepare. The, the, te- the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God is going to have a cleansing effect. And that might mean some people getting mad. One preacher said, I had to preach my church down to four before God finally started working. Ezra was given disciplinary power over God's people as their shepherd. In the same way, Christ is deeply concerned for the purity of his church. He's mandated in the New Testament that the one who persists in unrepentant, unruly sin is to be removed from the gathering of God's people until he repents. Why is that? Because the cross of Christ is transformative. The one who says, I identify as one of Christ's people, as one of Christ's own, and yet I refuse to live a transformed life. He's to be separated from the saints. 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Thessalonians 3 tells us that. So this passage lights the way to the road to the cross quite well. But looking beyond our current age and looking ahead to the age of the coming kingdom of Christ, Ezra assumes a shadowed form, doesn't he, of a kingly judge, of a messianic king. Ezra is empowered to punish those who refuse to worship God in obedience. You ought to think about the coming of Christ in Zechariah 14. After Christ has established his kingdom, Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 16, takes significant detail to describe that Christ will require national annual worship in Jerusalem. That if any of the nations refuse to obey, they'll receive no rain in their region because they're being rebellious. It may be popular to agree with so-called religious freedom, but in Christ's kingdom, worship of God will be insisted upon. And of course, all of us as true believers saved by grace through faith, of course, will love to worship Christ in an, in an uninhibited environment. But the Satan, that what Satan would have uh, nations do is to not have uh, that sort of freedom. Uh, I'm sorry, Satan would have the nations want to have that freedom. And so what is Jesus going to do? When the nation says, we're not going to Jerusalem, we're not going to celebrate the Feast of Booths as our king commanded us in Zechariah 14, we're not going. Jesus says, fine, no rain until you come. Why is this? And why do even some believers say, "I, I just can't wrap my mind around that? Why that level of insistence? Well, it's very simple. Isaiah 42.8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Religious freedom is kind of okay because we're allowed to do some things, but did you catch that word, allowed? By whom? Government has no right to allow us to do anything. Religious freedom will be taken away someday when Christ returns. And the only way you may worship is God's way. And we look forward to that. So what can you do to pray for your shepherds? We need your prayers. Here's what you can pray for. Pray for courage, that we're men of faith. Pray for praise from men who truly yearn to worship God and give Him glory. 
Pray that the leadership has a following of those who model their lives and ministries after their shepherds. Leaders ought to be replicating themselves and others. Pray for the initiative to take proactive leadership and do what's pleasing to the Lord and teach others to do that as well. Pray for loyalty to the Lord above all, even above making any people happy, above bowing to any entity that would insert itself into the life of the church. Pray for faith to trust the Lord for the things we cannot see. Pray for organization to be good stewards of what God has given us and pray for protection to watch out for the sanctification of the flock and urge toward Christ's likeness. So what you have in Ezra is not just an example that you can't follow, but an example you can follow and that you can pray for. And this morning, as we talked about the preached word of God, that's connected directly to shepherds. And so as the shepherds go, so the church goes. And so we need your prayers and we need your your support in that way. Courage, praise, leadership, initiative, loyalty, faith, organization, and protection. I'm going to pray for us, and then at the end of our time, uh, before I dismiss you, I'll, I'll kind of give you my announcement, uh, our little teaser about what's going to happen on Sunday evenings in the coming months. So let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful for this example of Ezra. I can hardly wait to meet him. Lord, he is the, the premier teacher of the word in this part of the Old Testament. A man after your heart, a man who knows his Bible and leads literally thousands of people to follow after you. Lord, I pray for our little church here. I pray that we would be faithful as shepherds. I pray we would be faithful as members. Lord, we would ask boldly that you would allow this local body to be faithful until Christ returns, that we would not be found wanting, but that we as a church body would stand before the Lord Jesus someday and hear those glorious words, well done, good and faithful servants of Bakersfield. We pray, Lord, to be faithful by your power. We pray that we would be men and women of God who exemplify these qualities that we see in Ezra. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.